Let's open the word of the Lord to the gospel according to John, chapter 17, and verse 1. I want to lay out a premise for you. And this is going to be a governing thought as we read these incredible words. I believe, and I know you believe, that anything that Jesus says or prays or teaches is good. And it is good for God's people. And as we read these words, remember that starting premise. Whatever Jesus says and teaches and prays, it must be good and necessary for his people. On the second Sunday of Advent, we've returned to what we've called the high priestly prayer of our Lord Jesus. And as you know, it is the inspired record of a great prayer that Jesus lifted to the Father on the very night he was betrayed. Last Lord's Day, we observed that this special prayer was prayed out loud by Jesus in the presence of the disciples while in the upper room as they had shared that last Passover, that last supper together. But what we also discovered as we began looking at this incredible prayer is that it's, it's more than simply a verbatim accounting of what Jesus prayed out loud. It is nothing less than a striking revelation of the Son of God. We not only have the incredible privilege of, of learning about those things that Jesus prayed about, but as we walk through the words of this prayer, we discover more about the one who prayed them. And what we find in these amazing words from the lips of Jesus is nothing less than a compelling disclosure of the identity of the one we know as Jesus, the one whose birth we are celebrating all this month. And as we read these words, we, we need to be gently warned. What we are about to read will profoundly challenge what we believe. And if we grasp what Jesus is saying here, it will drive us to our knees. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing to be challenged. It's a good thing to fall on our faces before such a one as Jesus. Jesus is lifting up this prayer not only for his own benefit, but for the benefit of the disciples. And notice in verse 20, it is not only for the benefit of Jesus and the benefit of the 12, but you can see in verse 20, it is for the benefit of those who believe in Jesus through the word of the disciples. And that would be you and me. Now, Jesus is praying for us here in these words. Again, as we get ready to read them again, you need to remember the, the setting for these words. These words were uttered in a context, and we need, to, we need to understand that context to properly embrace what Jesus is saying. The context is chapter 16, and there Jesus ends his farewell discourse on a somewhat sour note, you might say. He, he, he says this, he says, the hour is coming. In fact, the hour has arrived when, when you, my 12, will be scattered and I've said these things to you that you will have peace. In me, you will have peace. And then Jesus says, in the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. And so the setting of this prayer is the reality of tribulation and suffering that awaited the disciples. 
and the suffering that would be common to all those who want to follow Jesus, the suffering that inevitably comes into our lives because we are named among the disciples of Jesus. And back then, those 12 and those 11 true disciples desperately needed Jesus to give them peace. They desperately needed the assurance that he would be with them and he would, he would conquer their enemies and he would, he would uh, quell their doubts and fears. That They needed something from Jesus. And in this prayer, he gives it. He gives them their peace in this prayer. He gives them their assurance in this prayer. He gives them their hope in this prayer. And so we need to read it. And we're going to read verses 1 through 3 and then verses 6 through 8. Let's read them together. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you since you've given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. They are yours. You gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now, they know that everything that you have given to me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. The words of Jesus. And now may our Lord bless the proclamation and the hearing of these beloved words. As we read and reread this prayer of our Lord, the prayer of the great high priest of our confession, we are first struck by the way Jesus identifies himself in this prayer. What did Jesus believe about himself? For centuries, that's been a question debated and tossed around like a ping-pong ball in many higher centers of learning or learning centers of theology and philosophy. What did Jesus, what did Jesus really believe about himself? And that, that's a debatable point according to some. But you can read these words and you can see it's apparent Jesus had a very precise self-awareness. He believed and asserted certain things about his identity and he, he sets them forth here. And we read the prayer and we, we hear Jesus identifying himself in his own terms. It's amazing. If this were the deathbed prayer of just another man, even a good man, that'd be one thing. But this is the farewell prayer of the one who is God in the flesh. The one who would give his life on the cross for sinners and be raised on the third day. And that's an entirely different thing. And we, we really need to read this prayer. The last prayer Jesus would pray, what did he say about himself? Well, in the first place, you can see that Jesus says and thinks that he is the Son of God. In verse 1, Jesus twice identifies himself as the Son. He says, I am your Son and the Son. Glorify your Son that the Son may 
glorify you. And those are incredible words rolling from the lips of Jesus. Here, the Lord is referring to himself as the very Son of God. You can remember how this gospel begins as the Apostle John later would write that very thing as he started his gospel record. He says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. And then he says, glory as of the only son of God, the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And then in chapter 1, verse 14, John says, I have seen and borne witness that this is the son of God. And then maybe you remember how how before Jesus went to the cross, before Jesus prayed this prayer, he explicitly identified himself as the Son of God. You think of of John 3, for instance, when Jesus is talking to, to Nicodemus. And remember the words he said to Nicodemus in that verse we all know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, me. And then you think as the ministry of Jesus becomes explicit, it becomes public, it's inaugurated officially in his baptism, Matthew 3. There John the Baptist meets the Lord at the river. John baptizes him. Christ begins his ministry. And we read these words according to Matthew. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice, the voice of the Father, a voice from heaven said to all of the world, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And then we're not surprised at all to read the words of the Apostle Paul in the Galatian epistle. And he says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. And then we roll into that book of Hebrews, that letter to Hebrew Christians, an anonymous letter, doubtless from an apostle, where in chapter 1 the author says, in these last days God having spoken in many ways, in many portions, in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son whom he appointed as the heir of all things and through whom he created the world. He is the Son of God. The one offering up this prayer is the Son of God. God the Son is praying out loud to God the Father. Jesus fully believed, fully asserted, fully demanded that you understand that He is the Son of God. The Son of God. But there's some other truth about Jesus that we learn related to that. Not only is he the very son of God, the second person of the Trinity, he is the son who's been given all authority. Look at verse 2. In this prayer, Jesus, the son, turns to God the Father and says, Father, you have given him, that is your son, authority. 
What an astonishing claim about his rank and his power. You have given him authority. And the authority in view is a, is a comprehensive, eternal authority, a divine sovereignty that is unrestricted. It is fully comprehensive. It is an exhaustive sovereignty over all things. And again, that is the same claim Jesus had always made about himself. That not only is he the son, but he has divine authority. Listen to this, Matthew 7, 9. Matthew records Jesus as, as the teacher. He is out teaching the multitudes. And the multitudes recognized this about Jesus, according to Matthew. He was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And then in Matthew 9, Jesus heals a, a paralytic. And he commands him to rise and take up your pallet and walk. <laughs> and then they begin to question him. And Jesus explains why he did it that way. And he says to the skeptics who just viewed that miracle, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bag, and go home. He has authority. And then in John 5, 27, in the very book we're studying, the Lord Jesus had said that the Father has given the Son authority to execute judgment. And then in John 10, Again, in this very book, Jesus says, I have authority to lay down my life freely, and I have authority to take it up again. Now, that's an incredible statement. I have the authority from my Father to, to lay my life down freely on the cross, and I have authority to raise myself from the dead. My goodness. And let us not forget, in Matthew 28, as Jesus is about to commission the disciples to go and take the gospel, to build churches, to preach the word, that great commission, Jesus says to them before he sends them out, all authority in heaven and in earth has been given to me. Now go. God the Father in eternity past has given to God the Son a supreme and unrivaled dominion and sovereignty. And that's the one who's making this prayer. The one born in the manger bears the highest title, the most glorious and exalted name there is in all the universe. In this, in this very gospel, we see that one praying In the book of the Revelation, written by John, John looks ahead in a prophetic vision. He sees the last day of human history as we know it. And he says the day will, the day will be met by the sound of something happening that's never happened in human history. The voice of the archangel, the 
trumpet of God. Then we, we see the king coming and he, he, he rides on a horse, John says, a white horse. And his clothing is flapping in the wind. This robe that he has is flapping in the wind. And you see that the rider of the horse, the Lord Jesus, has inscribed on his thigh a name. King of kings and Lord of lords. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. But notice what Jesus says specifically about his authority in this prayer. Now, he's praying this so the disciples will hear and learn. And notice he says, the Father has given the Son authority, but especially authority over all flesh. That is, over all humanity without exception. The authority of the Son is universe-wide and limitless. Its reach and extent are, are unsearchable. There is nothing and there is no one out from under his reign. There is not a nation or a force or a power or a principality on earth or in heaven, seen or unseen, and not one individual who lives outside or out from under the authority of the one making this prayer. He has authority over all flesh. He is Lord. Paul calls him the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords. The psalmist calls him the king of glory. He has authority over every person. And listen to how Jesus then further defines this authority. It is an authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given to him. The authority of the Son, Jesus specifically announces, is an authority exercised in the realm of salvation itself. The Father has granted the Son power and sovereignty and the right to execute and finish the redemptive plan of God. The Son has received His authority from the Father for the sake of salvation. The Son has come to earth to discharge the Father's commission to bless His people with eternal life. The Son of God left heaven and came to the spiritually dead world in order to grant eternal life to those who do not possess that life. You and me. He came to deliver those who are dead, as Paul would say, in transgressions and sins. And here Jesus is declaring that the ones who receive that free gift of everlasting life are the very ones the Father has given to the Son to redeem. Amazing. What's our premise? If Jesus taught it and prayed it, it must be good. And Jesus is laying this out in prayer before the disciples who are about to go into the world and face the onslaught of hell itself. He is encouraging them with a mysterious, blessed truth that boggles the human mind. 
to try to understand this more fully, we, we need to appeal to something Jesus had previously taught in an extensive teaching episode in John 6. That teaching episode was preceded by a miracle we all love, the miracle of the multiplication of the bread and the fish. The time when Jesus fed 5,000 men, maybe 15 to 20,000 people in all. He fed them with a very small meal, just a few loaves of bread and a few small fish, and he fed them fully. They were all filled and gorged, and there were 12 baskets left over. And in that context, Jesus looked out at the crowd, numbering the tens of thousands, perhaps, and he began to teach them on the topic of salvation and his authority. And listen to what Jesus taught. Looking out at the crowd in John 6, 37, Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but that I would raise it up on the last day. And here, for the first time, we encounter Jesus speaking about those whom the Father had given to the Son to save. Are you interested in this yet? Isn't this amazing? Our Lord had also said something in John 5 prior to this. Now we know what he meant. He said, as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whomever he will. Do you hear the authority? The lordship of Jesus over salvation itself? And in that same episode, Jesus made some other remarkable claims that are very much related. In John 6, Jesus looks out at the crowd. I mean, it would be a Sunday morning crowd that every preacher would love. And he says to this crowd, no one, maybe he looked them in the eye, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And again, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. As if to top it all off, later in John 10, in that great teaching episode about the shepherd, Jesus being the great shepherd, Jesus said, I'm going to save my sheep, and no one, no one will snatch them out of my hand. And Jesus literally says this, My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and therefore no one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me. Oh, this is a massive truth. This blows the circuits. It's what Jesus taught. It is what Jesus prayed. It is what we need to hear in order to have our hearts filled with hope and peace today. I appreciate the summary of this passage by... uh, Uh, Dr. Carson, Dr. D.A. Carson, and he says it is clear. When you read these words of Jesus in John 6 and in John uh, uh, 17 and in John 10, it is clear, and listen to this, it is clear that there exists 
a group of people who have been given by the Father to the Son. And this group will inevitably come to the Son and be preserved by Him. Now this is a a big truth. It is incomprehensible in some ways. It It is a humbling truth that Jesus is praying about in John 17. You you can read John 17, 9, and and the mystery grows, doesn't it? Look at what he says in John 17, 9. Jesus says, I'm not praying this prayer for the world. I'm praying this prayer for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. You won't find here a prayer for lost humanity. You find here a prayer for the sheep of Jesus who were given to Jesus in eternity by the Father. Wow. No one is trying to make this easy. No one is suggesting that this doesn't challenge everything that we believe and want to be true. But this is what Jesus prayed. And it is good In this prayer, in this prayer of intercession, Jesus is expressing the eternal longing of his heart. He is taking joy in those he came to save. He is going to be glorified by those he came to save. And these ones he prayed for are the very ones whose salvation had been planned long before creation. In other words, if you, don't, if you don't understand this, if you don't embrace this, hear this truth. Jesus the Lord is praying and he is suggesting, he is claiming, he is saying very clearly that he has absolute authority over everything and everyone, even the salvation of sinners. Christ alone is the giver of eternal life. And it is a free gift. That's why he came. The very thing Jesus prays about, these things that are so heavy, that are so challenging to us, these things explain the necessity of his birth in human flesh. He came to this sad world to save his sheep. He said, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I know my own, and my own know me. And then he said, I have other sheep not of this fold. I must bring them also. He came to give them eternal life. And here's the punchline. Here's the point that we need to embrace, whether we understand or not that the Christmas story begins in eternity past. Even before creation existed, the Christmas story begins with God the Father giving to His Son a precious gift. Long, long before the wise men came with their gifts to the infant Jesus, God the Father had already given a gift to His dear Son. Sinners, 
like you and me and all who trust in Jesus. Think about this. Think about what Jesus is saying to the disciples. He is saying, and he's saying it to you, that before you belonged to Jesus, you belonged to God the Father. That's what he's he's teaching. The elect have always belonged to the Father. But it is only by pure grace. Because these very ones were alienated from God to the utmost. And God reckons them his own in mercy according to his secret purpose. In the divine mind, and we we hesitate to even suggest that we know what God was thinking. But in his eternal divine mind, God the Father contemplated humanity as lost. He contemplated them in Adam, lost, undeserving, just objects of his wrath. And he placed his love upon his elect, and they did not deserve that love. By the eternal counsel of his own will, he he chose to love them. They were not lovable. They deserved hell. And God loved them. This is what Paul meant when he wrote in Ephesians 1. God chose us in Christ. That is, God chose us with our sin in view, with our depravity in view, with our deserving of hell in view. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. This is what Jesus is praying about. And if you belong to the great Savior, you have come under that saving authority. It is by the exercise of the authority of Jesus, by his divine power, that that you became a Christian. And, And you can see what Jesus is doing. These disciples did not choose Jesus. Jesus chose them. And if Jesus chose them, Jesus will preserve them for eternity. The only one who will be lost is the one who wasn't one of the elect. But the other 11 will persevere to the end because Christ loves them and he will defend them and the Father gave them to the Son and the Son will not lose one sheep. And as they go into the world where they may die for their faith, they have the assurance that they belong to Jesus. How did you become a Christian? The Son received you as a gift from the Father in eternity past. And then the Son came, and He graciously conquered you. He subdued you in His love. He overcame your resistance with His powerful, invincible grace. 
He brought you under his gentle yet unrivaled command and lordship. He gave eternal life to you. It's as if you were Lazarus, dead in your tomb, and Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, and you did. Now you belong to him. You belong to him always and forever. Now perhaps you're uncomfortable now. It's making you intellectually or perhaps emotionally uncomfortable. Maybe this challenge is everything you've always believed about your salvation. But this is the truth about you and about all who believe in the Savior, and it comes right from the lips of the Lord himself, who is the Lord, who is one who possesses divine authority, an authority that is bigger and wider and more comprehensive and more magnificent than we could ever imagine. It is infinite authority, and it is why we belong to Jesus. What love. Can you imagine how much the Lord loves you? to do that? Can you imagine the assurance that should be beating in our hearts if this is true about us, that we owe everything to God's mercy? Can you see how this would sustain us in our times of persecution and difficulty and pain? We belong to Jesus. This is what the disciples needed, and it's what you need to hear. The purpose for this great doctrine, as you see here, is to assure you that you belong to a faithful Savior, come what may. He is the Son of God with an authority that is undefinable in terms of its magnitude and boundaries, it extends to the ends of the universe, and it includes even your own salvation. What a king. But there's more, and I'm watching the clock. <laughs> there's more. He is the son, and he has authority, brother. But he's also the one called Jesus Christ. Verse 3. Jesus identifies himself as the son who possesses divine authority, whose name is Jesus Christ. Now, we just let that name roll off our lips, don't we? Everybody talks about Jesus. But it, this, this is coming from the lips of Jesus. He is saying, my name is Jesus Christ. And my goodness, what's in a name? Jesus. That's his human name. It's an Old Testament name, Joshua. It means Yahweh saves. The people around the hometown of our Lord would hear that name as Joseph and Mary called it out. He was the little boy, Jesus, or Jesus in the Latin world. 
The little boy that all the neighbors knew, the the little boy that grew into a man, the little boy that, that patterned himself after his father, the carpenter, Jesus, his human name. But Christ is added to that name. And my goodness, Christ means the anointed one of God. And do you see what's happening with the connection of these names? Jesus from Nazareth. Jesus, the little boy that we saw grow up into a man. Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, Christ. He is claiming for himself that he is fully human and he is fully divine. And he's come as the God-man to grant eternal life to all whom the Father had given him. Jesus is one person with two natures. He is fully human and fully divine, and he is the possessor of all authority. This is his claim for himself. This isn't what a theologian writes or a philosopher writes or a Sunday school teacher says about Jesus. These are the things Jesus says about himself. That's who's making this prayer. And he's come, he says, the son with authority. The son and the Messiah has come to give eternal life. Now, what is eternal life? And you can see that Jesus spells it out for us in very, in very clear terms. He's teaching the disciples, all right, this is what I'm giving you. This is what you are to proclaim to the world. I've come to give eternal life to all who believe. This is, he says, eternal life, that they know you, Father, as the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So eternal life is about knowing the Father and knowing the Son. The blessed gift of eternal life, which comes sovereignly from the Sovereign One, is about knowing God the Father, God the Sender, and knowing God the Savior, God the One Sent. You must know God and His Son. And this is not intellectual or academic knowledge in view. It is the knowledge of a relationship with God the Father mediated through God the Son. The definition that Jesus is laying out of eternal life doesn't fit with many contemporary definitions, does it? His is a very specific and very, shall I even say, very restrictive definition. It is to know God the Father as he is known through Jesus the Son. There is no other way God can be known but in the face of Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, you do not know the Father. There is no getting to the Father. There is no knowledge of the Father. There is no eternal life with the Father except through the Son. 
It's as if Jesus is confirming the message in prayer that these men must go and proclaim that I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but through me and this is the message they are to live and die for. When you were saved, the incarnate Son gave you the gift of knowing the Father. And in knowing the Father, there is life everlasting. Jesus, the one who came to Bethlehem's manger, is the only revealer of the Father. Jesus says, I've manifested your name to the people you gave me out of the world. He says this in the prayer. Jesus, you sent me to those that you gave me, and I've manifested your name to them. I've given them your character. I've displayed your character. I've taught your character. And only through me will they come to know you. This is what he says. And so the Father can't be known apart from the words and the works of God the Son. That's why Jesus said, if you had known me, you would have known my Father. That's why Jesus said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. That's why Jesus and his disciples said, whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. But let your eyes drop down to verse 8. While salvation is a gift granted by the Father to those given to the Son in eternity, faith is required. On the divine side, our salvation, according to Jesus, is due to God's elective mercies as known through the sovereign Son. But on the human side, Those who are saved can be described in terms of their response, their response to God's gracious self-disclosure in Jesus. It's been said that saving faith will always cast its eyes directly on Jesus. And by this faith, the disciples showed themselves to be truly His. Verse 8, I've given them the words that you gave me. They have received them, and they've come to know in truth that I came from you. And they've believed. They've believed. The disciples have exercised personal faith in Christ. They believe that he is the one sent. And the evidence that they belong to him is the fact that they believe. That's how we know who the sheep are. We would not know who they are except for the fact that they believe in Jesus. As we go into the world, we don't know who these are. We don't know who the elect are. We don't know who the true sheep of Jesus is. We carry the gospel to whoever will listen, and we will discover the sheep by the fact that they confess that Jesus is Lord. Do you see that? They receive his words. They keep his words. They have new hearts. They have a new love. They obey their Savior. Do you see what Jesus... Jesus is getting them ready for their mission. And he's assuring them that they belong first to God 
who loved them in eternity. The son saved them in time. And now the son sends them into the world armed with the gospel to bear a message to the world, to whoever will listen. And that message will draw out the sheep of Jesus. Every tribe, every tongue, every class will be emerging under the power of the gospel to raise the dead and build the church. It's been said that the entire ministry of Jesus is smashed into this one prayer, and now you can see that that is true. In this prayer, we discover who Jesus really is, and he's bigger than we thought, and he's better than we thought, and his love is deeper than we thought, and his saving power is greater than we thought. And his authority is more extensive than we ever imagined. He is a Lord like no other. But we see ourselves, the ones he came to save. If we belong to him, we owe it all to him. He is the only reason for our peace and our hope. He is the only reason we have to celebrate on December 25th. Because he's done this. He is the reason we can be patient and faithful till the day he returns. Christmas began with a gift from the Father to the Son. He gave you to the Son, and he gave his Son to you on the cross. And now we give gifts to him of our lives and everything we have in his service. If Jesus taught it, if Jesus prayed it, it must be good, and it must be true. It must be what we need, what we need to hear, what we need to believe in order to serve him faithfully and to endure all the persecution he promised would come our way until he comes to save us. What a prayer. What a Savior. Lo, within a manger lies he who built the starry skies. He who, throned in heights sublime, sits among the cherubim. Sacred infant, all divine, what a tender love was thine. Thus to come from highest bliss down to such a world as this. Hail, thou ever-blessed morn. Hail, redemption's happy dawn. Sing through all Jerusalem, Christ is born in Bethlehem. What a Savior. What a Lord. Praise his name. Shall we pray together?